We've always been here Every single year From ancient gaze right up to today See, history is queer Some think it's a new way But we've got something to say History is very, 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 very gay Hello everyone, this is Lee Pfeffer. Welcome to a bonus episode of History is Gay. I am here with a wonderful guest that I've wanted to get on the show for a while and just kind of, you know, slid into to Twitter DMs uh, and be like, hey, we're both doing work at the same places and you've got some cool stuff going on. Let's chat. So I am here getting ready to talk a little bit with Hugh Ryan. Hugh is a writer and a curator, and he has a new book, Women's House of Detention, which is a queer history of a prison that was once in Greenwich Village. We will talk all about it. He also has his first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, that won a 2020 New York City Book Award. And he's also a curator and has done a whole bunch of really wonderful, amazing things, is on the board of some wonderful projects. And I'm really excited to talk with you. Hi, Hugh. Hi, Lee. Thanks for having me on. I agree. History is gay. We can end History there. is, in fact, gay. <laughs> yeah, okay, that's it. Thank you, everyone. We've imparted all the necessary information. <laughs> Shortest bonus episode in the history of the show. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, um, I had been wanting to, you know, we. I think we've been kind of existing around each other's circles on Twitter in various places. And I'm like, you know, why haven't we actually, like, talked? I think there's been a, quite a few times where, like, a friend of a friend has, like, connected us via email. And it's like, by the way. Yeah, we've definitely um, been on so, parallel tracks for a while. So I'm excited. I'm excited right. for our crossover episode. <laughs> yes, yes. I'm excited that that finally those parallel lines have, have intersected. But yeah, so I just kind of wanted to have a, a conversation uh, introducing our listeners to, you know, what you're working on right now, and specifically Women's House of Detention, at, because this new book that you have written is both a really complex history and also a really wonderful call to action for abolition and really looking at the ways in which the carceral system intersects with queerness. So, I mean, you know, let's just kind of start a little bit with you. Is Can you tell uh, anybody who's listening who might not already be familiar with your work and how you got into all of this, just a little bit about you and your background beyond a, you know, sentence long mm -hmm. bio? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> History has always been a love of mine, but it wasn't something I pursued, uh, nor was writing. I was very much of the opinion that writing was something that you did when you were 65 and retired. You certainly didn't make a career <laughs> out of it. Uh, and so I never really pursued it until I was in my 30s. But at that point, I had been for a while concerned with the historicizing of queer life uh, for a variety of reasons, just personal ones mostly, but also I'd been a women's studies major in college. And so much of what I studied was about power, who has it, who exercises mm -hmm. it, and how it affects the world that we live in. And when I was in my early 30s, looking at queer life, I was thinking a lot about queer representations. Uh, there was this show at the Smithsonian called Hide Seek, Difference and Desire in American Portraiture. It was their first big queer show. Ooh. It was like 2010. And they'd worked by David Warnerovich, who I loved. So super excited. And then it was censored. There was a big conservative outcry over a kind of bullshit newspaper article. And they pulled <laughs> the David Warnerovich As it goes. Work. Yeah. 
without ever consulting the curators 24 hours after the article came out it was just a complete shit show and there was all these protests and i got involved and then i realized at this like weird moment where i was like wait i'm protesting the removal of one piece of art from one historical show that is in dc i probably will never see it and frankly i can't see any work like this in new york so why am i mm. wasting all this energy not wasting i mean protesting matters but it felt like there were lots of people protesting around the country and there wasn't anyone in my eyes i was ignorant but in my eyes at that moment <laughs> there wasn't anyone working on queer history and queer museology in new york city i was absolutely wrong about that there were tons of people that's what I thought. <laughs> so I came up with this idea to throw a one night party called the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History, where queer people could create queer exhibits in a queer space on queer topics for other queer people. And we just see what that was like. We'd have that experience. And 300 people showed up at my Brooklyn apartment for the show. Wow. 330 of whom made exhibits. We didn't have room for everybody, especially the 12 plainclothes cops who showed up at midnight to shut us down. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. everyone immediately wanted to know when the next project would be, the next pop-up museum. And I had no plans beyond one night. I was not a museum studies person. I wasn't a curator. I wasn't <laughs> an artist. I wasn't a historian. But there was a need. I saw that lots of people wanted the same thing that I wanted. So we started working together, a group of us, a collective, which we called ourselves the Pop-Up Museum of Queer History. And one of the early questions we started to investigate was the queer history of Brooklyn. And it was this kind of shocking moment. We asked people for uh, their ideas about exhibits about Brooklyn, which we had done in Philly and we had done in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. And, and there people had lots of ideas, local stuff they wanted to share. In Brooklyn, there was this like weird silence. People knew about Manhattan's history, mm. but they didn't know about Brooklyn's. And I had this moment where I was like, oh shit, I don't know anything about Brooklyn's history either. You know, it was really like one of those like dumb eye-opening moments where you're like, how did I not realize this earlier? And that started me thinking about the queer history of Brooklyn, which led to about seven years of research leading me into my first book. I got a grant when I was starting from the New York Public Library when I thought it was just an exhibition, a curation that I was doing. And they said to me, when you're done doing this research, you should have a book proposal together. And that's really what mm. launched my career as a historian. Wow. Nice. I mean, it's it's so interesting when you kind of come to the realization that what sparks joy and interest in you is like in your own backyard. It's like, oh, you keep being drawn back to it and all these different kind of confluences from your life. Um, and you've continued that work going into House of D, too. How how did you come about specifically saying, I'm going to look at this specific prison in this specific site? Like, how did you go about your research and how much of it were you familiar with when you started? Almost nothing. I will say this. A lot of my work is based around finding places where I feel like I should know something for a variety of reasons, but mm -hmm. don't and find that it is hard to find that information. So I often am working through my own ignorance, uh, which is good or bad. I don't know, but it's true. But what brought me to the House of D it was one of those kind of magical situations where you notice one thing and then suddenly everywhere you look, it's there over and over again, where you just had not seen it before or heard it or somehow you missed it. So when I was writing When Brooklyn Was Queer, there were two folks in particular whose lives brought me through the carceral system. Mabel Hampton, a young black lesbian mm -hmm. dancer who was arrested in 1923 on a charge of prostitution. And someone who, when I was writing that book, I did not know their first name, but I would later learn in writing the House of D book, went by Big Cliff, Big Cliff Trondle, who was a 
arrested in 1913 for wearing men's clothes and smoking. Uh, he was a, a trans man who really articulated his identity in a way that is very familiar to people today. And so that was very interesting to me because he kind of, for my research in Brooklyn, marks a real transitional moment where our modern ideas of trans kind of show up in someone's mouth. So that was really exciting for me. But both of them ended up arrested, passed through prison, ended up in the house of detention or in the court and jail that immediately preceded the house of detention in the exact same spot in Greenwich Village. So they had put it into my mind. And I was already thinking about prisons as collectors of information about queer people and as good resources for queer historians. But I wasn't yet making the leap to prisons as constitutive of queer culture and queer culture as constitutive of prison culture, right? I was just thinking of them mm. as record keepers, but I, it was in my mind at that moment. Then as I was finishing the book and I was thinking about what I wanted to do next, I had a number of thoughts in my head. I knew I wanted to remain working in New York City. I live in New York as do both my partners who work in the theater. I was never gonna have time to go anywhere else and do a lot of research anywhere else. So I needed to focus on New York. And I felt that my last book really concentrated on the move between the 19th and the 20th century. And I wanted a topic that would move me a little further. I also, like I said before, didn't know a lot about the history of Brooklyn when I started digging into it. So when I started researching that book, I thought I'm going to write a book that is this like really racially, genderly, classly diverse history, only to get into the history of Brooklyn, discover it was like 98, 99% white until like 1930 and more racist than Manhattan in a lot of ways. And so the history that I wrote talked about whiteness, it talked about race, it talked about class, but it was still centered in a certain amount of mm. white maleness because those were the records that existed. And that was the space that I was looking into. And I hadn't known that going into it. So it was my own fault, but I wanted a project where that couldn't happen, where that constitutionally could not happen or the project would fail. Not that there aren't a lot of great things to write about and that are interesting to research about white cis gay men, but I think a lot of that research is out there. I often challenge other people to go beyond doing that work. And if I couldn't do it myself, then how could I say that to anyone else? So that was the kind of conceptual frame that was floating in my head as I was thinking about this. And this is when that moment of like, bam, 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 it starts to appear everywhere really happened because I had it in my mind. And then I went on like a, I think first was a tour of the West Village with Jay Toole, who's a, a friend and an activist that I had known for a while. And she talked about being incarcerated in the House of D and how she felt that the House of D and people like her were being forgotten and that she was doing this specifically to tell her story to younger people. And I thought, well, here's someone who I care so much about, who's done so much for my generation and world, telling me specifically, this is a forgotten story. I am still here. Somebody listen. And it connected to these two people that I was researching. And then it started to appear everywhere. I found a copy of uh, Audre Lorde's Zami, a three book collection, actually, of hers on the street. And I lost my copy. So I picked it up and I flipped through it. And there was the part where she talked about the Women's House of Detention. And Joan Nessel has been a guiding light in my work for years. And I was looking through one of her books and there is the Women's House of Detention. Looking on outhistory.org and there was the Women's House of Detention. It was like everywhere all Angela of Davis. Like, Angela Davis. Everywhere. And then the real, the thing that like really said to me, okay, you have to work on this, is I found a statistic from a study by the Williams Institute at UCLA saying that 40% of people currently incarcerated in prisons intended for women identify as LBTQ. And then I found another report by the MAP project, I forget what MAP stands for, citing that 
40% of people in girls' detention centers identify as LGBTQ. Mm. And I was like, wait a second. Okay, we have a current crisis of incarceration that I don't see being discussed. And I'm really fucking gay. So if it's not happening around me, like it's, a lot of people are going to be missing this. I have a respected elder who is in my world telling me this is my history and it's in danger of being forgotten. Please do this. And I can see how it directly relates to the work that I am already doing and tells the stories I'm already following. And it just felt like, oh, that's your work right there. Like the universe has told you what to do. Now get on it. Right. Uh, amazing. It's, it's, I mean, it, yeah, it just kind of feels like the universe was sending all of these different signs. I want to kind of talk a little bit about what Jay Tool was saying about how this, this environment being like a, like a center for queer community in a way. Like, what do you think? I mean, that's got to be such a specific experience of, of queerness and queer experience. Like, what do you think the effect of, for, for, you know, many of the folks that have been incarcerated through this system since the early, you know, 1900s to when it was eventually shut down, uh, what, in like, what, the 70s? Yeah. Is that what it was? 71, it was closed. Yeah. 74, it was torn down. Yeah. So like, what do you think the effect of only really being around queer community in the context of like queerness being criminalized had on incarcerated people that you covered in the book? Ooh, no small questions, huh? A lot of effects. <laughs> a lot of effects. I mean, there are a couple and it changes throughout the period in which the prison existed. In the earliest years, one of the things that became very obvious to me in doing this research is that the carceral system, courts, prisons and social workers together combined were largely the vector through which women, trans men, non-binary folks, people assigned female at birth in the early part of the 1900s learned what homosexuality was. We see mm. this over and over again in the records from the 1930s, people being arrested who have already had extensive queer experience in their lives but learning in court that they are a homosexual and what the definition of the homosexual was, and then being put into a prison where they get to put that new theory into practice, right? This is very similar to what Alan Berube writes about in Coming Out Under Fire, where men learned about homosexuality through World War II, right? But it happens earlier mm. for these women. And that was kind of a critical question for me. It, it raised a lot of situations where I was like, wait a second, whoa, whoa, whoa. If the court is informing these people that they're queer, the court understands what queerness is and the court is right. looking for queerness. So that sent me back to the origins of this entire system, which is a post-Civil War idea of a carceral system aimed at women, which I very quickly came to understand was a forced feminization process. What the system understood was that for women, there were really only a couple of roles in life. You could be a wife, a maid, or a mother, or a whore. And that was mm -hmm. it, right? And one of those was illegal and three of them were legal, but they all required being properly feminine. And so the system targeted people who were not properly feminine, tried to force them to feminize and saw all women who were not properly feminine as sex workers who needed to be arrested and fixed. So from the very beginning, I realized we had a system that was looking for improperly feminine people to put them through a process of forced feminization. And it would understand anyone who did not willingly go through that process, anyone who is not properly feminine as a prostitute. All poor women were seen as an invitation to prostitution. All improperly female people were seen as going to be poor because they couldn't get jobs, right? So it was all twisted up together. And the court taught women in that, right? We had this other idea in the 19th century, the invert, right, which rests more on gender than mm -hmm. our idea of sexuality and more on the body than on personality being in the mind. 
the court system is what transitions working class women out of that frame of knowledge and into our new mode of LGBT. So that's the right, earliest of identity part. versus behavior. Yes. And of yeah. identity around sexuality, not around gender. That had to be sort right. of winkled out. So that's in the earliest years, what's happening to these people. But throughout the time in the prison, for many, many people, being incarcerated was a moment to either explore desires that they already had or to be made aware of desires that they did not know they had or hadn't had a chance to explore and explore those. So in the earliest part, Mm. it informs women that they're homosexual and, and teaches them about our structures today. After a certain point, it's no longer necessary to inform them in the same way or to teach them what it means, but it still is providing the moment for them to explore this world. And because the prison is so gay, as history is, everything (laughs) around the prison becomes enmeshed with queerness, right? The space where the prison is helps become a queer neighborhood because you're sending thousands of queer people to this one location. And even if the neighborhood wasn't particularly friendly for them, right? They still needed to use the subway there. They still needed to get lunch. They still needed to wait outside the gates to see their girlfriend. They still needed to meet their lawyer and go to their health screenings and their probation meetings. What the prison did for queer women in New York City in the 20th century was it created a place that the government could not shut down, right? In the most homophobic Mm. years of American history, when the streets are full of violence, when bars are being raided, when you could be kicked out of your government job if anyone even thought you were gay. The prison was the one place that the government gathered queer people in and therefore could not keep them away from. So it becomes this unique location for queer folks in New York City. And because of the importance of Greenwich Village to the emerging idea of what it meant to be queer in America and in the world, it becomes essential to an understanding of queerness in America. I think the House of D made Greenwich Village lesbian and trans and queer, and then took that idea of queerness and transmitted it to the whole world. Oh, wow. I mean, did you... Did you have to, I I feel like, you know, we're at this point in time right now where there's, you know, some dichotomy between queer elders and queer youth and and everybody having different definitions of queerness and and identity. And sometimes it gets kind of boiled down to, you know, queerness being inextricably linked to who you're attracted to, who you're kissing, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, through, through this, you're finding so much is predicated on what markers have been put on you as being not sufficiently of the norm, right? So like, did you have to adjust your own definitions and assumptions around queerness and queer identity or like what counts as queer in this research? I think Quote unquote that, counts. Yeah. <laughs> I think what I had to do that I think is kind of what you're asking about is I had to start asking myself, what did practices and even articulations of identity that changed over time mean. Because one of the things that we've been taught in the schema of LGBT, right, what these women were learning in this court system, is that your sexual orientation is permanent, unwavering, and once you figure out what it is, traces backwards and rearranges everything you've ever known about yourself. And the same is true for gender identity, right? We are taught this idea that we are one essential being at all times, even when we do not know that we're that essential being, even when we think we're something else. And the more I actually listened to the experiences of people just articulating what they were doing and what they thought, 
the less and less that seemed true, the more that seemed like an imposition onto their lives, a saying of, no, this is how you have a normative sexuality or a normative gender identity. You are one thing, you are always that thing, and it never changes. And it is the dominant decider of your sexual desires, sexual practices, and gender identity, right? There was never space for what a lot of these people seem to be articulating, which was something along the lines of this. My orientation is heterosexual. When you remove me from all other things, everything else in the world, I generally think about sex and desire towards men, right? However, that's not the only decider for how I have sex. That's not the only thing that causes me to have desire, not just sex, because we do have this understanding of like this horrible idea of compulsory homosexuality, right? Which is like, you go into prison, you're so deprived, you must have sex with a person who is like, not of the orientation that you desire. And it's an awful experience. It's forced into you, you know? What I was actually seeing was a lot more people for whom they might have had an orientation, but that orientation only controlled about 70% of desire, right? And when in another situation mm -hmm. where that orientation didn't make any sense, then they were like, well, now I'll experience some other things. And then when they left it, they went back to being mostly determined by their orientation, right? What it started to show me was that our ideal of sexual orientation isn't wrong. It's just partial. It's just limited. And if you listen to them, many different things were happening for them that break apart our ideas of what identity is or could be and what are the prime motivators for all of our decisions around sexual orientation, desire, and gender identity. I think that I understood a wide world of queer people as queer, right? I understood before I did this research that someone who has sex with a woman once in prison would fit into my definition of queerness, but I didn't understand from the inside of her experience what that might feel like. I sort of saw it as a kind of mm. Gramscian false consciousness, right? She's queer. She doesn't understand herself as queer, but she, really she's bisexual. And I know the truth of her orientation because orientation covers everything and you can tell the truth of it. And I just had to flip that around and start saying to myself, like, their experiences are true. My system does not fully capture them. Right. Which I think is is such right there, such the thesis of queer and of queerness, right, is our systems do not capture X, Y, Z. Um, I think that's, you know, it's, I mean, it goes back to the, the whole history of like queer being a concept really rooted in queer theory and, and as a, as an active verb, queering systems, queering norms, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, how that ties into identity, how that ties into behavior is, you know, somewhere that, I've always had, you know, I, I, I love I love the gray areas. <laughs> Me too. And I, I actually think this is um, too long of an aside, but just real quick, I'm working on this right now, so it's in my head. I think that we are undergoing something very similar to what happened at the end of the 19th century in America, where we moved from one kind of regime of sexual knowledge and identity and thinking from the invert, which was based in the body, and you could tell through gender mostly, to the homosexual, which was based in the mind and disconnected from gender. That happened because of urbanization, right? Queer people were able to see each other, come up with new names, and then the civil society defined us, and then the courts and the carceral system spread that definition to everybody. We were able to see gender-normative homosexuals for the first time as a category because of urbanization, which made them present to each other and then present to the larger world. Now, the internet is doing something new yes. and different, but it's similar to urbanization, and our whole system of LGBT is what is being changed. And that's 
causing all mm. kinds of changes for individuals, for alliances between different groups that are unexpected. I think that's why we're seeing this boom in identities that sort of uh, reimagine what it means to be bisexual or transgender among Gen Z youth. I think we're undergoing systemic change in knowledge that is hard to see and track. Uh, but if you work from the 19th century to today, it becomes more obvious because we've already gone through it once before. Anyway, small aside, it's what I'm working on right now. If your listeners are curious, uh, keep an eye <laughs> on me in electric literature and hopefully something will be coming out soon. Heck yes. I mean, well, that's that's a perfect segue into another question I have, which is like, why do you think it's important for people now to look to queer history? I mean, I I personally am of of the thought that like, you know, so many things are changing and evolving, but you can't break what you don't know existed, right? Like, I, I feel like you need to know where we've come from or what cycles we need to retread. What can we learn from history to move into the future? Like, mm -hmm. why do you think it's important for people to listen to the stories of queer people from history? I mean, I think it is exactly... It is exactly that, that it allows us to think about the angle of change we are currently on. I think we get taught history, at least I did in the 80s and 90s when I was in public school in, in, in New York. I got taught history as a, a static thing where you memorized moments and people and dates. But mm -hmm. I, I think history is actually the thing that lives in between those. History is the change. Yes. It's the evolution. It's the delta. It's not the moments, but we get taught it that way. It's, it's like if we taught math as counting and all you had to do was learn to memorize one through a hundred. That's not math. That's the raw materials for math, right? Names and mm -hmm. dates and that shit is important, but it's important because it allows us to track how we are changing and we are always changing, right? right? On an individual and on a societal level. And what we need to understand is the angle of that change and the speed of that change and what makes it slow down, what makes it speed up what shoots it in a different direction. So I, I track history to understand that I am a moving object in time and what direction I'm headed in. I don't like history because of like specific funny anecdotes. That's great. I, I love that shit, you know, like that's fun, but I can get that from fiction. I, I track history <laughs> to see the future. Mm. Oh, that's really good. And it's not linear either. Like, I think people think of history as just like this linear timeline where it's like, ah, yes, and then this happened, and then we progressed farther than we were. Mm -hmm. And it happens in cycles, it happens in offshoots, it happens in parallels, you know? It's, I mean, one yeah. of the things that I've been thinking about so much is, I mean, we just recently did an episode on Anita Bryant and Save Our Children and the Briggs Initiative because I was watching all of these things happen right now with Don't Say Gay and all of the anti-trans bills throughout, you know, multiple, multiple states and seeing the exact same arguments and the exact same language popping up. And it's like, you know, somebody who did not know about what happened in the late 70s with this rise of this very specific, somewhat new type of homophobia, like might not necessarily connect that like, oh, we've been here before and we said fuck you and mm -hmm. this is how we got through it. Let's look to how, you know, gay liberation activists were in some ways using this to their advantage to, ch you know, change the narrative mm -hmm. and being able to use things as kind of guidelines and um, precedents, which is really useful. Yeah, I actually think we can even pull that Anita Bryant example backwards and forwards a little bit more to get more out of it. Because yeah. what I find really fascinating about the Anita Bryant moment right now is that Anita Bryant 
For those of you who don't know, 1970s uh, beauty queen singer turned political organizer who led a Save Our Children campaign down in Dade County, Florida, that was about getting you know homosexual teachers out of the schools and uh, homosexuals as predators. What made her successful in that moment was that she was picked up by a larger group of Christian nationalists who were pushing this narrative to activate states' rights because what they wanted yep. was to get back to segregation and segregated schools, which they could get to through states' rights. And they had been trying for years to activate a sort of Christian conservative moral coalition. And in fact, they tried abortion before because what they yep. wanted was, you know, race. They wanted this anti-blackness. They wanted segregation. That was out the window in this particular moment. So they have to move to something else. They try abortion. It doesn't really move the Baptists that they're trying to get going, which is surprising considering what will happen later. And eventually they hit on Anita Bryant's Save Our Children campaign, which brings up all this energy, gets all this organizing. And then they spread from that back to abortion, back to segregation, back to states' rights, right? These things have always been connected. And when we can see that in an example from the past, I think it helps us to unwind the present. Mm -hmm. There's very concrete reasons why these anti-trans attacks and anti-queer attacks are happening at the exact same time that everybody is rallying against critical race theory because they are inextricably linked. Yes. Um, yeah, we talked about that in the episode is, is literally how a lot of the people who were on the, you know, organizing parties of, of Save Our Children were literally the same exact people who were really active in anti-busing campaigns. Yep. And you look at a, a figure like Chris Rufo today, who's the one who decided that he was going to make critical race theory this you know bogeyman of the right and now has moved on to doing the exact same thing with groomers and homosexuals in schools these things are not separate right no it, and and it's also just tired and boring like okay get a new argument this, this is you know 50 years later come on chop chop <laughs> find something new um <laughs> uh how did researching women's house of detention change your own views or kind of understanding of abolition uh, from entirely where you from top to bottom? <laughs> I, I, oof. I was a progressive going into this, right? I would have told you that prisons were bad and they needed to be reformed, but I hadn't thought deeply about that or what those reforms would even mean. And doing this work showed me how throughout the life of the Women's House of Detention, everyone seemed to agree on, on most of the issues. And by everyone, I mean everyone. Journalists, the people running the prison, the people in the prison, the social workers outside of the prison, the people on the street. Most of the people being arrested did not deserve to be arrested, could not be helped by the prison system, would not be helped by the prison system. And then, in fact, the system was making everything worse. Everyone agrees from the moment it opens till the moment it closes, basically, and yet nothing could be fixed. Nothing could be changed. And in fact, the only reforms that ever get pushed through were ones that made the system bigger, right? The only right. wrong the system would ever admit to was being underfunded and overcrowded, right? Over and over, we just grow and grow and grow the system. And that made me think a number of different things. One, if everyone agrees that the system is broken, but cannot change it, then the system actually is, is not broken, right? The system is doing something else. The system is doing something that we need and cannot directly address. And so all the things we do to make it more fair, those don't matter because they're going to get overwhelmed by the real need of the system. And the real need is that we refuse to take care of most people. And the mm. prison system, far from being broken, is massively efficient. It is an efficient source 
of shitty, awful control over people we refuse to take care of, folks who should be getting mental health treatment, folks who should be getting education, physical health, who should be getting food and places to sleep and venereal disease testing, all of these things, all of these broken systems of care, the prison system swoops up and scoops up all the people who fall through so that those systems can keep functioning as broken, limping, inefficient, underfunded systems of care. Abolition became primary to my way of thinking about how we move forward because none of that shit can be fixed so long as the prison system exists. The prison system is the linchpin by which all of these other inequalities are enabled because if we did not put those people away, our cities would be filled with them. Our towns would be full of them. Our families would be full of them. And we would have to address it somehow. So the mass incarceration system is really a system of hiding everything else we don't want to take care of. And until we tear it down, we can't even imagine what change is going to look like. I think that we now, you know, and this is, I just, I didn't come up with any of these ideas by myself. Basically, I looked at this information and I was like, wait, I don't understand the prison system. It's clear to me it's doing something that I don't understand. And when I looked for people who seemed to understand the prison system as what I was seeing, the answers over and over again were abolitionists. I mean, starting with Angela Davis, right? The woman who was in the House of D as a Black liberationist, who even says in her autobiography that being in the House of D contributed to her fundamental understandings of prison, right? She taught me what I needed to know about abolition and about prisons. And from there, I went outward and read other, primarily but not exclusively Black women, many of them queer, writing about these issues for decades, you know? Mariam Kaba and Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Andrea Ritchie and these folks who are so critical. They taught me that abolition was the linchpin of all the rest of this. And I feel like all I really did was sort of see the ways in which the queer movement, which is so dependent on or should be so dependent on care, was not living up to what could be this great commitment to abolition, right? Because abolition asks who is cared for. And queer politics really should focus on those who are uncared for, because as long as queerness is not a vertical identity, as long as it's not shared by parents and their children regularly, there will always be queer people who need care. And once you need care, Mm -hmm. if you live in America where we do not fund systems of care, eventually the carceral system is going to get its claws on you, right? So for me, I saw a direct connection between work that mattered to me and that I understood, queer politics, and what I was coming to learn about abolition through looking at the experiences of the House of D and asking myself, well, if every politician and political theorist I have read up until now got it wrong, who gets it right? And truly the only answer is abolitionists. They were the only ones who had an analysis of the system that matched what I was seeing. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh, the fact that the book, your book basically just starts out with this, this question of looking at these dichotomies of like, legal versus illegal, right versus wrong, and, and reframing that in if we have to put this in, in a dichotomy, right, it's harm versus, and you posit that that care is the opposite of harm. And I think that's, it, it's, it's so big, and it's so important. And you're right, it, it encompasses so much of the ways in which we we fail so many people who quote unquote fall through the cracks of society, but really it's those are cracks that are deliberately created. Yeah. And when we look specifically at queer experiences, it's like, what do children abandoned by their parents need? Care. What do elder adults without descendants need? Care. What do folks with HIV need? Care. What is access to medically safe, socially safe gender transition services? 
care? What do LGBTQ asylum seekers need? I mean, over and over again, the queer movement is about finding systems of care. And so is abolition. Mm. Amazing. Um, I mean, I just have a couple of more questions. Like, I mean, I, I love I love the way this conversation is going. It's just I wish that we could have like eight billion hours to talk about this. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so <laughs> long winded that I would talk all that way too. <laughs> I mean, same. Um, but you know, you talked a little bit at the beginning, and you talk about it in the book that you know so much of what we learn about queer history in terms of like concrete data and information comes from the carceral system and comes from a very sterile and like biased source, right? Like the majority of what we're going to find past a certain date is data about queer people who have been arrested and prosecuted for vagrancy, for the sin with no name, et cetera, et cetera. Like. You know, what are the kind of key differences that you found between reading about queer people in these systems versus getting these like firsthand accounts, uh, either from living elders or from, I think it was like Mabel Hampton got the opportunity to tell her own story. I think every archive comes with its, uh, you know, its, its flaws and its uh, strengths, right? And I think that's something that we can forget about when we're using archives that appear more neutral to us, they're more used to that they're constructed and they have problems. So. For me, as I was digging into this, what I started to look at was the ways in which any kind of collection of data fails or or fails less, <laughs> basically, when it comes right, to queer right. life. The prison system, <laughs> much like the medical system, which is the other place that we get a lot of early records about queer people, mm. sees the queer people it's dealing with through the lens of its profession, which is to say as a problem, right? That's always the starting place. It's always gonna start from these people are a problem. We must solve this problem. They cannot solve this problem themselves, nor are they full people participating in society. They are a problem in society that must be solved. Therefore, we're not interested in the fullness of their life. We're interested in the moment of that problem, the moment of arrest or the moment in which they encounter a doctor, that's it. So the records you get through the prison system are really narrow. Uh, they don't tell you a lot about a person and they treat them as fungible data, right? Not individuals with thoughts or experiences. It's age, it's birth date, it's weight, it's length of sentence, it's how many years of education did you have. That data in the aggregate can tell us certain things about who is going through prison, but it can't tell us about someone's life. And it can't tell us about what exactly got them into prison and how prison affected them and what they think about prison now that they have been through it, right? And that's what I wanted to capture. So I knew that a lot of people, there's two ways you end up in the, the public record, right? Either you have power and so your documents are saved and people interview you and you own a home and your diaries are in the home and you have descendants who then want to promote your name and they have <laughs> access to your diary and blah, 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 blah. Or like most of us, you enter the historical record because someone else has power over you. And I knew that the power over in terms of prison records weren't very good. And I knew that the power over in terms of doctor's records was a little bit better. And I started to ask myself, where would the folks I wanted to write about, where would more of their lives have been captured, particularly their queer lives? Who would have been asking questions and recording them? And I quickly hit on social workers. Social workers, mm. because of, as I said before, this connection between being properly feminine and being seen as incarcerated, they were concerned with questions of queerness and proper femininity among women. And they connected those ideas to prison, particularly social workers working with formerly incarcerated people. So I knew there was a good chance that social workers, and I had worked in social work organizations before, so I knew the kind of records that we kept, voluminous records, 
So I knew there was a chance that in the 1930s and 40s, in the earliest years, there might have been organizations that were keeping the records, which still were not neutral, still had flaws, were still instances of people with power over the people I really wanted to talk to, but might get closer to their real lives and their real thoughts. Right. And that bet turned out to be right. There was a 140 box collection from the Women's Prison Association at the New York Public Library full of case files that no one had ever looked at. It's been there since the 80s. Wow. And I got permission to see it. And within the first couple hours, I found files that were hundreds of pages long. And yes, most of it was through the lens of the social workers. But some of these social workers were queer. And some of them knew a lot about queerness. And some were terrible. And some were homophobic. It was all over the place, right? But they were concerned about queerness. And they wanted to listen to the people they were working with. Even if they weren't very good at it, they tried. So in these records, I found things like their college transcripts their poetry, letters that they wrote, letters to the social workers, letters they wrote to other women. I found photos of themselves. I saw all these ways in which they were able to express themselves beyond the narrow container of the social work relationship. And that's what truly made my work possible. I spent the first year of research on this book just trying to figure out where I could get closer to their lives and hitting on that idea of social work records. Amazing. I mean, it just makes me think about all the ways in which, you know, when when I'm doing research for the show is having to interrogate each and every source and figuring out where the bias is coming from. And I mean, especially when I'm looking at things that are coming out of narratives that sometimes the only narrative you have from a specific time period is from uh, the lens and the writing of a colonizing force, right? You know, what do you take from that that you can extrapolate when you don't have direct, like, you know, because especially in places where, you know, the primary tradition is like oral storytelling, that sometimes the only way these things are getting written down is from really like racist and, you know, cis centric and, and heterosexist sources. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I, I really, you know, just in starting to read the book, I like pinged on that, wanting to, you know, kind of ask you about that, you know, what that difference is like. Yeah. And a lot of my process involves swimming in a ton of data as close to primary sources I can get for years. Because in the volume of it, even if every individual record has like some shittiness or some problems or some of this, in the volume, I can start to see trends. And then when it comes time to write, I can take those trends investigate them separate from the individuals that I'm working on. Once I understand that trend, then I can go back into the research I've already done and say, what one or two or three people walk me through this? Who best lives out and fleshes the story I want to tell? So for me, I I try to compensate for the problems of the archive by reading thousands of files and then picking out the one or two that my global understanding from reading those thousands will walk uh, someone who doesn't have time to read a thousand files through <laughs> Right, yeah. Essentially acting as like a curator. Exactly. Yeah. Um, what do you, I mean, just to kind of close out the conversation, like what do you want people who read Women's House of Detention to take with them from the book? Are there any particular stories that you found like really significant or that surprised you and that you hope that people really take from it? I think the two big takeaways I would say that I want people to have are that abolition and queer politics go hand in hand, which we have already discussed, and that history making, if there's anywhere in the world that should already have all its stories told, it's gay stories, It's Greenwich Village, right? And this story has been sitting there for decades. People telling it, writing it, sharing it, 
making movies about it. It's in Broadway songs. It's in albums. And it hasn't been told. And the records that I use to tell that story have been sitting in the public library for 40 years. I think that sometimes there's a lot of information that isn't out there, right? There's a lot that's been lost or was never captured in the first place. But I think there is a lot more out there than we understand is out there. And there is so much for us to learn and share. And it takes a lot to get at it, right? We've got to dig in. But this was just sitting there. <laughs> was just sitting there. If any place should have all its queer history told, it's fucking Greenwich Village. So how <laughs> has this been missed out of every large story? You asked about a specific moment, and this connects, I swear to God, to what I've just said, not just jumping around, but a specific moment that for me encapsulates all of this about abolition and its connection to queer politics, about history and what should be remembered. The House of D was 500 feet down Christopher Street from the Stonewall Inn. Literally, mm. Christopher Street dead ended into the prison. The folks incarcerated could see, hear, and smell what was happening during the riots. And they held a riot all their own, setting fire to their belongings and tossing them out the windows while screaming, gay rights, gay rights, gay rights. This foundational moment of queer history, if you just like enlarge the frame, changes completely. Just zoom out a tiny bit. And yeah. when you do that, what you discover is that there were tons of queer people in the prison on the night of Stonewall, but most of them, we don't know their names. The two whose names we do know, Joan Bird and Afini Shakur, leaders in the Black Panther Party, who talked about the connections they learned and made and felt inside the prison between Black liberation and queer liberation. Afini Shakur met her girlfriend in the prison. And once she left, she talked about how seeing gay liberation front banners from the prison taught her to think about queerness and queer identity and queer politics and its connection to Black liberation. She introduced the gay liberation front to Huey P. Newton in Jane Fonda's apartment to help them organize <laughs> together. She was a critical queer Black revolutionary force who understood this system opposes all of us and oppresses all of us. And that understanding wasn't just one way, right? That's coming from her incarcerated in the prison and on the streets. Those folks who were there the first night of Stonewall and the second night of Stonewall and the third night of Stonewall and the fourth night of Stonewall, because Stonewall is not one night. Afterwards, when older organizers in the gay movement, what was called the homophile movement, who were themselves mm -hmm. courageous, incredible, but had a very different life experience and a very different tact on how this work should be done. They wanted to organize this new Stonewall energy. They called a town meeting. They said, what are we going to do next? And the younger activists said, we want to protest the prison in support of the Black Panthers. And the older activists said, fuck no, we are not doing anything to piss off the cops. In part because they had been working with the mayoral administration to stop the raids on gay bars. And the raids that were happening at that point were mostly mob focused, not gay focused. They thought they were getting somewhere, right? So they say no. And those younger activists storm out of the meeting and announce that they are founding a new organization, which they called the Gay Liberation Front, inspired by Vietnamese communist anti-colonial activists. And that their first action as the Gay Liberation Front was to protest the Women's House of Detention in support of the Black Panthers. How is this not the story Amazing. of Stonewall we are telling today, right? I'm, la I'm like stifling laughter so that it doesn't like get into you know your track but like i literally as as we're recording this right now on this what sunday afternoon i am about to edit 
uh, our latest like full episode that I recorded on Friday, where we specifically focused on the latter half of the homophile movement and specifically the ways in which the latter years of the homophile movement failed to capture that new liberationist energy coming in from the student-led youth <laughs> movements looking at the Black Panthers, looking at all of these different coalition-building movements that, that failed to capture that en- energy post-Stonewall and led to the effective end of the homophile movement um and the ways in which those things all um i mean you said it is history is specifically looking at the changes and the patterns i can't wait to listen to that episode that sounds great (laughs) i'll I'll link it to you i'm I'm excited um well i mean this has been such a wonderful conversation i hate to hang (laughs) up um i mean you know i i have a feeling this is not the last time we will we will chat um i know that we've had you know a couple of couple of little conversations about potentially doing a couple episodes together get you in here as a you know doing some research um but i wanted to ask what projects are you working on now is there anything new and exciting in the pipeline that you know where can folks find more uh, from you and your work? Well, I'm working right now on finishing up an essay for electric literature on why I write queer history, which is also about what I see changing in queer life right now today. It's something that I've been working on either for like a couple months or seven years, depending on how you count that. <laughs> uh, it's been something I've been trying to articulate for years, but I've been writing it for a few months. So that'll come out pretty soon. My bigger project that I'm working on right now is looking at the history of the Lower East Side through an urban studies lens as a post-World War II fascinating uh, social artistic neighborhood of foment that is in some ways particularly queer, but not only queer. So that's how it kind of connects to my work. Uh, So that's a long-term project for which I'm interviewing tons and tons and tons of people. And if folks want to keep up with it, I have a Patreon, which largely is how I make money in the portion of my work that is four years of research, no time for writing. So you can find me on Patreon (laughs) as Hugh Ryan. You can also find me on Twitter. You can also find me on Instagram, but it's really boring and I don't post anything there. So I don't recommend following me there. But, you know, if you (laughs) wanted to be a completist, you could. <laughs> well, wonderful. I mean, I look forward to seeing all the the new wonderful things that come out. I and I mean, and Women's House of Detention has gotten so much wonderful uh, attention and press. And I, I wish you all the best. I'm excited for what comes next. And actually, I mean, is there anything happening in the future with the pop up museum of queer history? Right now, the pop up museum it's just on a sort of like permanent hiatus. It is a wonderful project, and I've written a little bit about it in the journal QED. I always believe if someone wants to make a pop-up museum happen, I don't own that. Like, I will give you some advice on how to run that and what we learned from doing it, (laughs) but uh, I just don't at this time in my life have the time uh, to do it, unfortunately. But I I I always hope it will reappear. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much, Hugh, for coming on here. Thank you for having uh, me. This was a fabulous little chat. It was wonderful. We'll hear from you more later. Wonderful.